Welcome to The Mind Killer, the rationalist brain on politics. As always, I'm Wesley Fenza. I'm Inyash Brodsky. And I'm David. All right, today we are going to be talking about some good news and bad news from the Supreme Court. We'll have an update on the virus. As always, we'll have happy news and troop deployments. But we're going to start out with some stuff from last episode. If you missed our short correction that we put out, last episode we were discussing a story where the WHO had put out a press release saying that uh, asymptomatic people with COVID-19 were not contagious. And that was within hours found to be a somewhat of a misleading headline. What turns out is that if people are asymptomatic entirely, as in they never get symptoms, um, they're not very contagious. But pre-symptomatic people, so people who have the virus and will have symptoms at some point, uh, but don't yet, are still very contagious. Um, so we put out the uh, correction uh, the, the next day uh, to inform everybody of that, but we wanted to put it here again at the top of the show. Can I also point out how much of a failure I feel like for this? Because I was literally, as we were talking about it, thinking, you know what? There's this this effect. I forget what the name is, and I should have looked it up before the show. But there's this effect where people will read journalists, trust them on everything. The one area of expertise that they know something about, they'll be like, oh, my God, this journalist completely got everything wrong. This is not at all how physics actually works. And then they'll just keep on reading the paper and believe them on everything that they don't have expertise in again when they really should have been updating negatively uh, on their overall truthfulness based on the one domain where they have experience. And like, I was thinking, I was literally thinking at the time, you know what, this is the same who, who were trying to appease China. And so what said, you know, this is not human to human transmissible at first. And, you know, maybe masks won't help. And I was thinking, should we, should we not believe them right here? And then I thought, no, this, I'm sure they wouldn't keep fucking things up, right? And, and I just feel really stupid for, for not having said, voiced my concerns or something. See, see, I don't feel that way at all because I'm pretty sure the first thing I said about it was I don't trust anything that the WHO says anymore. And I, my impression was that we were all properly skeptical as we were discussing it. Yeah, I guess I should have just been more vocal. Yeah, I I re-listened to that episode and I think like knowing that it was wrong, it's kind of easy in hindsight to say that it sounds like we were skeptical, but I also think that, like, someone just listening to that episode would probably come away thinking we at least were more confident than we were before recording that uh, pre-symptomatic people can transmit it. So I don't want to be too self-congratulatory, also, the uh, phrase you were looking for is uh, Gelman Amnesia, G-E-L-L hyphen M-A-N-N Amnesia. Awesome. Uh, apparently from the original Westworld. Oh, really? Uh, that's what the, that's what came up when I googled it, because I remembered that that was what it was called, but I wanted to try to find where it was from. Well, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, in any case, that story turned out to be mostly bullshit. So uh, don't go out feeling invincible if you don't have symptoms. Yes. Also, we're sorry, despite Wesley's protestations to the contrary. 
All right. And we also had some feedback from last episode. Yes. Um, someone on the uh, uh, Bayesian Conspiracy Discord, uh, it was Catnip. Um, had a, a comment regarding my comments on economic imperialism. Uh, they basically were just pointing out that um, a lot of times uh, math and quantitative analysis can conceal more than it reveals. It's really easy to quantify uh, biases and historically especially racial biases in a way that lends them an air of credibility that they really don't deserve. And um, so uh, uh, because um, economists are the only like rigorous quantitative social science that uh, doesn't necessarily mean that we should trust everything economists say, and I actually completely agree with this. Um, I am not an Austrian economist, but I do have pretty deep Austrian sympathies, and that is a critique that Austrians make a lot. Um, but the reason why I'm still an economic imperialist is <laughs> that um, uh, economists are the best social sciences, scientists. We aren't good social scientists. Um, the, uh, exact quote I said in writing in response to, uh, Katniss, or Catnip, was, uh, um, a member of Dothalon's Bayesian conspiracy would think my pride in my field is adorable, given how obviously bad we are at what we do. But other social scientists, sciences are even worse. If a Dothalon Bayesian met one of them, they'd probably either one think they're professional parodists of economists dealing in sloppy strawmen of a primitive but improving field, or two, run screaming as far as they can before promptly nuking every single university and private research facility they can reach. Uh, in short, economists are morally and epistemically superior to other social sciences. Our use of math is part of this, but not all of it. But superiority is a relative concept, and economists are terrible is completely compatible with but they're the best we have yeah Catnip, um, uh, linked an episode of planet money when talking about this uh which i mean i was in every episode of planet money and it was another good one where uh they a, a researcher tried to to test the idea that if not necessarily test look into the idea that if you just make patent laws uh universal and rigorously enforced it will help an economy and uh, pointed out that when she tried to look into if this translates racially, there's absolutely no racial data on patents, so she couldn't really verify anything, and uh, that that uh, minorities often have their contributions suppressed. So it was it was an interesting um, it was an interesting episode, I guess. Planet Money. Uh, All right, and I think that's our third or fourth plug for Planet Money. <laughs> so if you're not listening yes. to it, what are you doing with your lives, people? Their podcast is better than ours. <laughs> <laughs> and so much shorter. Uh, but real quick, you should tell people what Dothalon is, because that is just a name drop out of nowhere for a lot of people. Ah, uh, yes. Uh, that is a uh, fairly deep rationalist cut. It is... So on uh, April Fool's Day, um, Eliezer Yudkowsky uh, habitually pretends that he's from an alternate continuity 
where um, people are generally more rational and better at coordinating than they are in real life. And uh, um, so if you've read uh, Inadequate Equilibria, it's basically a society where there are no inadequate equilibria. Um, I imagine we'll, um, we'll post a link to the uh, Tumblr post where he's talked about Dathalon in the show notes, but um, that should be enough to give you context on my comments, and if you want more, then you should read those posts. They are quite entertaining, uh, if a little bit depressing, because of how <laughs> much better reality could be. Um, yeah. Uh, and if you don't know who Eliezer Yudkowsky is, then google it (laughs) (laughs) then you're also probably not a listener of the podcast yeah probably so that takes care of that section we're going to be moving into our news stories and we're going to start out with some good news and bad news from the supreme court the good news is that uh, lgbtq people are now protected under title seven fuck yeah uh this was a six to three decision by the Supreme Court with Neil Gorsuch writing the majority opinion and John Roberts joining along with the four liberals, which to me was extremely surprising because up till now, I thought Gorsuch was just a partisan. Um, And this, you know, it's possible that he knew Roberts was going to vote with the liberals, so there was no reason to vote against it. It may have been some wheeling and dealing there, but... Uh, to me, I'm updating pretty hard on that he's a principled textualist. Yeah, I mean, there was a reason that for, like, a good couple of years in there, for the uh, less deplorable people who voted for Trump, their um, justification for why they still supported him was but Gorsuch. Uh, everything I heard about him, which, like, I'm not a lawyer, but... I I heard a lot of very decent and principled lawyers on both sides of the aisle saying that uh, Gorsuch is a really good uh, principled civil libertarian, and um, I'm glad that that take was vindicated. I think Gorsuch is a good example of what can happen when people who know about something make the decisions, because from what I heard, Trump, like, just didn't know shit about Supreme Court justices and didn't particularly care. So he took a list provided by some... The uh, Federalist Society. Federalist uh, thank you. A libertarian sp- group. Specifically and he was like, president of the Federalist Society, Cocaine Mitch McConnell, who uh, uh, do not like, but he's managed to keep Trump on a short enough leash vis-a-vis court appointments that, like, I'm willing to give him this one i mean supreme court maybe i've seen some of his district court appointments fair enough does the president oh mcconnell's district point appointments no no the the president appoints all federal judges oh shit i didn't know that oh yeah and some of his lower court appointments are just completely unqualified hacks it's pretty terrible maybe he wasn't given a list by people who know and care for those yeah, the Federalist Society maintains lists specifically for Supreme Court justices. They've been doing this for decades. Um, and conservative 
presidents generally listen to them. And I think all of Bush's appointments were off of a Federalist Society list also. Yeah. And I have to say, um, it's been a while since I had a uh, David takes a moment to appreciate high quality, if amoral politics uh, corner. Uh, corner. So I will say I admire FedSoc as a really masterful example of political coordination, even if I think a lot of the... Um, a lot of the legal philosophies and policies that they support aren't the best, to put it mildly. And uh, John Roberts, the chief justice who also uh, sided with the liberals on this, was appointed by George W. Bush. Yeah. Um, there is a, a an attempted analog on the liberal side for the Federalist Society called the American Constitution Society. I was actually a member in law school. Do they have a list as well? They have they have lists, but nobody really listens to them. Yeah. Um, they do not have the level of influence the Federalist Society does. But they're much younger, um, so they're trying to build up that credibility. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm i not sure that the left needs an equivalent to federal the Federalist Society because they kind of already have one. It's called the entire legal academy that isn't FedSoc. Is the rest of the legal academy liberal? Yes. You can oh, tell I... because it's part of the academy. I always assumed that the uh, that lawyers were more conservative than, than the average person. I don't know what group you're talking about. <laughs> Do you mean the American Bar Association? No, I mean like every law professor. Oh, yeah. Well, professors. Well, that's just because sure. they're professors, yeah. But practicing law people tend to be more conservative, I've from my experience. My understanding is that that's largely because of FedSoc. And uh, oh. there was a time not too terribly long ago when um, practicing lawyers were also... I mean, they're still pretty overwhelmingly... I mean, not overwhelmingly leftist, but there's a solid leftist majority. But um, I'm given to understand that there was a time not too long ago when they were pretty much all uh, at least moderate leftists, if not, like, way out there. Yeah, they're, I mean, they're by definition highly educated, so that tends to correlate with liberal politics. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Smug coastal <laughs> elite Wesley Fenza, thank you very much. Oh, no, I don't <laughs> think that's a good thing. Uh, certainly being highly educated is not something that makes me respect someone yeah. more. And it's not a smug thing to necessarily point out statistics, right? Uh, I mean, I mean, it, it is. I think you should do it. That was just me joking. Ah, uh, okay. I just want to be very clear that I don't mean highly educated in a complimentary way. <laughs> you, you always spit right after you say those two words. Right. I, I, I think it was my... Uh, troop deployment a, a few episodes ago about how we shouldn't have school so yeah you know all right one of, uh, one of the comments i wanted to make about this decision though is um that if it turns out gorsuch really is a committed textualist i think that is just fantastic news because textualism is really the only statutory interpretation uh way of looking at it that makes any sense can you give those of us who are feigning ignorance for the benefit of our listeners a definition of textualism? 
Yeah. So textualism is the idea that when you're interpreting eh, when you're interpreting a law, a statute, or a or the Constitution, all you look at are the words on the page. Um, and this is in contrast to a lot of other approaches where the liberals tend to balance equities a lot. Um, and conservatives like to look at legislative intent. And uh, Justice Thomas, in particular, is a big legislative intent proponent. Uh, and he tends to analyze laws under what he thinks that the Congress or the the Constitutional Convention meant when they said certain things. Hmm. Isn't, isn't that kind of important? Like, if those people are still alive and can can tell you what their intent was, that that should be at least considered? Because they had an intention when they passed the law. Well, and here's why I don't think legislative intent should be taken into account. Because no law is passed by one single person. And all you know that everyone who approved the law agreed on is the words on the page. Huh. You know, somebody could have intended something completely different from someone else when voting for the law. Right, and then they compromised on that wording for for whatever reason. Yeah, or they could have they could have interpreted an ambiguous statement differently. Okay. Um and just because you had people testifying in a you know, congressional hearing, which is a lot of what they look at when they look at um, legislative history, for instance. Just because somebody said something in a legislative hearing doesn't mean everyone who voted for it agreed on it. And especially when you're talking about a statute that was passed by Congress, that's hundreds and hundreds of people all voting. There's, I think, trying to get legislative intent out of that is pretty silly. Now, that's not to say that... There's not merit. It's not a reasonable position in some cases, especially in this one, because it's pretty obvious that the 1960s Congress didn't intend Title VII to apply to gay, lesbian, and trans people. Um, but you know, the law that they passed says what it says. Yeah. So I, I so in a way, I'm sympathetic to that um, uh, to that argument, but also. Like, there is a matter that, like, words change their meanings over time. And it's not obvious to me that, uh, like, I can't think of any good examples, but it's not obvious to me that uh, we should base our interpretation of laws on the current meaning of the words that were passed however many years ago and uh my understanding is that the sort of steel man version of originalism is using uh basically the textualist uh interpretation but using the definitions as they would have been intended whenever the law was passed uh, so what do you yeah. say about that i think it has pros and cons depending on what you're talking about uh, if you're interpreting constitutional provisions, I'm not really sympathetic to that view uh, because the Constitution uses a lot of vague language and it I, I think you can't really argue that it was intended to be precise or use precise definitions for words. You know, it uses words like cruel and unusual, which 
if they didn't intend for that to apply to whatever was cruel was considered unusual in the time period where it was being interpreted, then you know that's that's on the drafters. Um, I think it's much more likely that they intended for that kind of wording to change. Now, if it's something that had a very clear definition at the time and it's just changed, completely changed definition, then it makes sense to interpret it uh, based on what it meant at the time. But it's, I think it depends on whether the words are actually precise, were, were intended to be precise when they were written. Okay. Yeah, I can... I can get behind that. Well, I can see why there are various schools of thought on this matter. Yeah. Oh, it's it's um very it's a very open question in legal scholarship. So, uh, before we uh, move away from this question, I've always kind of suspected a little bit that people just like or lawyers and legal scholars just kind of had. Uh, policies they want to push and then they come up with whatever legal philosophy lets them push those policies uh, what do you have to say about that I mean I think it's a kind of an imprecise question I'm sure that happens at some point I'm not sure I'm against it um, you know I think the constitutional interpretation method we use should be the one that gets the best yeah, results so um I'm, I'm fine people people saying well this is the one that gets the best results so we should use that one um you know if you're trying to shoehorn a specific question into a philosophy and then it turns out that philosophy is terrible for everything else obviously that's bad but i don't see that happening too much okay all right so next news from the supreme court uh daca the Deferred Action on Childhood Arrivals Program, uh, which meant, which was the one that allowed children who were brought over by their parents illegally to the country, it allowed them to basically not be deported for an unspecified amount of time, um, is still in effect despite Donald Trump's ham-fisted effort, effort to issue an executive order repealing it conditional yay yeah it was um and this was a 5-4 decision with john roberts joining the liberals to uphold it on the probably the narrowest grounds possible basically it just said of course trump has the ability to do this and you know i completely agree with that because it was established by executive order so it should be able to be repealed by executive order but he just didn't follow the proper procedures you know his office issued a statement of reasons memo which is required when issuing this kind of executive order and it was just not good enough apparently uh and that's why they overturned it so he could easily just draft a new one and repeal it all over again um, and it would probably take some time to get through the courts, but the court basically told him how to do it. So it's saved for right now, but that probably will not last. What are the chances that he'll get around to re-repealing it before he can be voted out? Not good. Okay. You know, it basically, the the facts on the ground look like that if Trump is defeated in November, DACA is safe. If he is reelected, DACA is history. 
And is there, like, some kind of guidelines as to what reasons are good enough? Or is it just, like, the president throws out some reasons and then the Supreme Court decides those are good enough or not? I'm actually not sure, because I didn't read the whole opinion. Okay. Um, I just saw the ex- excerpts from it that were saying it's not good enough. I don't know what the legal standard is for that, and I doubt it's terribly interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Which is why I didn't read it. But apparently there is just some standard that it has to meet that this one did not. Uh, okay. So the bad news from the Supreme Court is that they finally made a decision on whether to grant cert on all those qualified immunity cases that we've been discussing for the past three episodes, and they Mm. punted. The Supreme Court is not going to review qualified immunity at this time. Which is very disappointing. This was like the perfect opportunity. Yeah, so I have mixed feelings about this. Uh, On the one hand, I would guess, especially because, like, it was a 8-1 decision with only, I want to say, Thomas uh, saying they should take it. Um, which, like, that seems to me like they were really hoping one of the bills currently percolating through Congress would repeal it. And in general, I prefer my legislation to be done by the legislators rather than the judiciary. So I'm kind of okay with it in that sense. But on the other hand, like qualified immunity was made up out of whole cloth by the Supreme Court. So I can also see a really strong argument for it was their mess. So they should be the one to clean it up. And also, they're the only branch of government that can um, get rid of qualified immunity without Trump's approval, and he has expressed an intention to stonewall any uh, bills that make it through Congress that um, uh, alter or eliminate qualified immunity, so... Like, I can kind of see what they were going for, but also, that was a bad move on on their part. Well, that is not entirely accurate. Congress does have the ability to override a presidential veto. Wes, there is not going to to. be a two-thirds majority in this (laughs) day and age on literally anything. I'm just saying, don't let Congress off the hook on this one. If they wanted to pass the law, they could do it. You can't just throw it at Trump's feet. I kind of want to throw it at Trump's feet, though. Like, I, I, I get what you're, I get where you're coming from, but like, I, I kind of have a. My expectations of Congress are low enough that I'm okay uh, saying this was a bad move on. Uh, SCOTUS's part because there's no way there's going to be a two-thirds majority for a um, qualified immunity repeal and there's no way that the justices didn't know that so yeah I mean I'm I don't know I'm uncomfortable with the justices looking at the political uh, situation and making decisions based on that I would rather they just stick to the law and do what they feel the law compels them to do. I'm also sympathetic to the idea that 
big changes are better done through the legislature than through the courts. But as you said, this was this is a court created doctrine. So I think it is was entirely their responsibility to correct it. And I am very unhappy that they are abdicating that responsibility. Yeah, they could have done something and they didn't. This is completely unrelated tangent, but when you said they punted on it, I was reminded that in a tweet, Donald Trump uh, said that uh, Supreme Court has punted on this, just like in the game football. And I'm like, (laughs) yes, we know that's where the term punt comes from. (laughs) Thank you. All right. All right, Donald. My my headcanon is that someone just, like, he off the cuff said... Uh, they punted. Where where does that word come from? And someone was like, uh, I think it's from football, sir. Uh, and he just wanted to share this mind-blowing revelation with the world. No, that's completely wrong. I will tell you what happened. Is he thinks that he came up with that metaphor. Oh! <laughs> He's like, you know what the Supreme Court did? They punted, like in football. <laughs> I, the sad part is I find that believable uh, it certainly would not be the first time yeah alright anyway enough nonsense about you know the current leader of the free world hmm. let's talk about COVID-19 currently there's, there's also good news and bad news here the good news is that COVID deaths have been falling consistently since mid-April. That was the high, and they have been on a sort of linear slope downward and haven't really... There haven't really been much deviations from that. Um, So it's looking good on that front. The bad news is that the number of cases has been flat and recently ticked upward. Um, So the same or more people are getting it, but fewer are dying. And nobody really knows why. Is It hasn't been due to in, uh, improved treatment options? That's one theory. Another theory is that the people getting it now are younger. Uh, so they are obviously dying at lower numbers. Um, another theory is just that we've the testing is picked up. So healthier people are getting tested. Whereas before, basically only the sick people were getting tested. Mm-hmm. So it may not be... The number of cases may actually be going down, but it's not reflected in the testing, or it's not reflected in the the, the test results. The data. Yeah, data was highly skewed before. Yeah, um, I recommend if you're interested in analysis on all of this, Zvi Moshewitz has a very good post up that we'll link in the show notes. Um, and one of the things that Zvi points out is that the differences are extremely regional. Um, so it looks like the Northeast, we're doing very well. Um, I'm in New Jersey, and we are uh, in the very, very strong downward trend, um, as well as New York, as well as Pennsylvania, and um, most of the rest of the Northeast. Uh, the South is increasing, um, and a lot of the west is increasing as well i hear texas and arizona are particularly bad yeah i've been hearing arizona is is the worst in the nation at the moment i it's 
Colorado is doing surprising, well, not surprisingly in my opinion, but Colorado <laughs> is doing very well uh, in terms of COVID cases. And, oh, oh, you have this right here on with the next next thing down. It's amazing how much this tracks with uh, both counties and states that voted for Trump or uh, Clinton in the last election. But I think this is something you want to uh, cover then. Oh, yeah. Well, it was just a, again, this is something from Z's post that he posted a graph that shows that red states um, are on just a, a trend line just 45 degrees upward and blue states are on a trend line 45 degrees downward um and then and it, that when you yeah, yeah go ahead. when you break it down by county you see the same thing the only difference is that in the statewide numbers red states actually have more cases than blue states whereas with the county numbers blue states still have more um but they're decreasing whereas red states have fewer but are increasing um, so they should cross soon. But the, if you look at the states, they crossed, you know, a week or two ago. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure how much there is to the uh, political differences. Because, like, the red state, like, political alignment isn't exogenous. The red states tend to be more rural, uh, more spread out. Like, the, the places where you would expect the pandemic, less immigration and tourism... Uh, the places you'd expect the pandemic to be hitting later anyway. Um, so I think that just uh, the red states are probably going to be more or less uh, playing out the pandemic in a similar way to the blue states were, just pushed back three months or so. Um uh, due to nothing at all on the policy side and just the basic demographic and geographic features of the states in question. I, you know, see, I kind of want to agree with you because I, you know, we, in by we, the, the U.S. in general was pretty much like, oh yeah, COVID, whatever, don't got to worry, guys, until it started hitting. And then everyone in the blue areas, particularly the cities, like panicked and went on lockdown. And as that happens in the red areas, I would normally have assumed the same kind of interaction would play out. But now that it has become a political political thing, and people lots of times identify whether other people are red or blue by whether they're wearing masks or not, I'm worried that they will hold out and not wear masks just out of tribal affiliation, and things could be worse. Yeah, of stupid politics. I'm worried about that also because, you know, I think we talked about this before, but there's a lot of evidence that the government policy doesn't really make a difference. And I think there's no better example of that right now than California. Um, California is doing really badly in terms of covid numbers. Um, they have been increasing for months um, and California was one of the states that was getting you know accolades months ago for doing all the correct things for ordering lockdowns and um stepping up testing and getting supplies and you know they were they were the ones who supposedly did everything right and they're still not doing well so i think that's a big data point in favor of the uh, government policy is meaningless theory um but then if government policy isn't doing anything, then it's individual decision-making. 
that's causing the you know success the northeast is having and as Eniash, as you said there this has become political now so it's become a mark of your conservatism to go out to to not self-isolate and to not wear masks um and you know i worry that that's the sort of thing that's going to cause the pandemic to uh well to really be bad well there's another thing it might be that isn't individual decision making it might just be good old-fashioned herd immunity like it, it might just be that new york's gotten to the point where enough people have antibodies that are not as below one and uh, um and uh, uh so just from the normal consequences of how humans are behaving um or how the virus behaves rather uh we're seeing the pattern that uh we should be expecting to see you know it would be interesting to look at rural counties in uh blue states and see if they look more like red states or if they look more like blue states because uh, if i'm right especially in like really big states where you can have rural counties in states with big cities but still have those cities be reasonably far away in terms of like drive time um yeah that would be a that would be an interesting thing to look at i might actually try to get county level covid data and see if that uh holds water well my understanding is that's what's happening in california um the big cities seem to have followed the new york pattern where they had a, a spike and and then a plateau and then a downward slope um and it's the rural counties that are now trending upward hmm. um if, if you look at zvi's data it does break it down by by red counties and blue counties oh okay um and he doesn't have the raw data it's just a graph but you can see the the blue counties are the ones that are high but decreasing the red counties are the ones that are low but increasing so it's not it doesn't ex it doesn't exactly answer the question but it sort of suggests that the counties are looking more uh, relevant than the states are yeah um for but here her herd immunity is certainly helps um but you if the entire country has to get to new york levels of infection um that's going to be very bad so i i hope that's not what needs to happen new york seemed to weather it decently though didn't they like they didn't actually have to triage patients into you have to die because we don't have enough beds no uh, they they did they did manage to uh expand their uh healthcare capacity enough to basically cover everybody yeah i mean my understanding is that the expansions actually ended up being superfluous and they didn't end up going uh that much or possibly even at all over just their basic their base medical capacity from january i i don't i honestly am not convinced that new york city has that level of herd immunity yet i think that their precautions that the people there are taking are actually helping a bit well it depends on what you mean by that level yeah. um you know you see i've seen a lot of people out there saying that herd immunity doesn't kick in until you reach a certain level, but that's not true at all. 
Um, if you have 10% herd immunity, that lowers the infection rate by 10%. If you have 40% herd immunity, it lowers the infection rate by 40%. So any amount of immunity is helpful. Uh, well, I mean, enough to get back to the level of super spreading events like sports events. Right. No, and, and I do not think that New York has that level of immunity yet where that, that sort of thing is safe. But it is safer uh, yeah. than in other places. Um, what is not safe is uh, indoor political rallies like Trump held in Tulsa over <laughs> the weekend. This motherfucker. Uh, <laughs> and this is this is why I'm worried, um, along with Eniash, about sort of individual conservatives deciding to say, well, fuck it. Um, I'm not scared of this virus because Trump's out there doing indoor rallies and not wearing masks. Um, and you can see even there's another story that the governor of Nebraska is withholding funding to counties that are requiring masks in government buildings and courthouses. Basically arm twisting to, to get them to, to repeal rules that call for masks. Which is just insane. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, I thank, all I'm going to say is thank God that it's an election year. Because if, if this was happening like two years ago or well i guess gu- gubernatorial elections happen every two years but uh, if this was happening in an off election year and by the time the next election came around the electorate had forgotten about all this shit then i would be so upset like i'm already pretty upset at just like the concept of democracy but it would it would make me so angry and uh, instead, there's actually a hope in hell that the electorate will remember and massacre these guys in the elections like they thoroughly deserve. One can hope. I do find it surprising, and you have this too, not completely surprising, but enough surprising that I've had to update that uh, there were no spike. There was really didn't seem to be any spike from the protests. Yeah. Um, and there are a couple of theories for that. One is just that the protests were mostly outdoors and people were mostly wearing masks, so they just didn't turn into the super-spreading events people thought they were. Um, yeah. Another theory is that the protests um, deterred enough other people from coming out that they stayed home and they kind of offset the infections that way. Interesting. I do like the fact that the protesters already had a strong incentive to wear masks to make it harder to identify them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and they were blue tribe, so masks are virtuous and blue tribe things. Yes. Um, the other theory is just that they're, you know, by raw numbers, there were a lot of protesters, but by, you know, population, it wasn't really that many people. So it just doesn't show up in the numbers. Huh. I still would have expected there to be a spike if there were a hundred thousand people gathered in a in a city center for a while. Yeah, because like yeah. you you imagine a hundred thousand people going back to their two to five person households, and like even if like I could see those numbers getting pretty big, pretty fast. 
But I guess there would have been a lot of correlation, like, within households between who was and wasn't going, so... I feel much better about outdoor activities now, and I think that is probably one of the reasons that Colorado is doing well, because we have a lot of outdoor activities here, and we are one of the more active states in the Union. Yeah. And outdoorsy people move to Colorado often. Yeah, and we still, I mean, the the protests could still have a long-term effect. Um, now, we were talking about before, the testing numbers aren't all that reliable. Um, I think the number of deaths are a much more reliable number. Um, and those those still would start being reflected if there was a spike because of the protests. But it would probably, the bigger spike would be this week or next week. Yeah. Um, speaking of the protests, do you do yes. you guys know what's going on with that currently? Because I haven't really heard much about the protests in the past week. Uh, well, there's there's a bunch of things happening. Uh, I'm gonna save one of them for the happy news part. But I was particularly wondering, do you guys have um, knowledge or opinions about the whole Chaz thing or Chop, as they're calling it now? I guess. Uh... My, my biggest take is that it vindicated my low opinions of the radical and especially socialist left, uh, especially around things like uh, whether they'd actually implement immigration reform, because the first thing a bunch of socialists did after they took over a part of the country was establish a strong border to keep certain people out. So, yeah. Well, isn't the people that they want to keep out the invading force of police, though? Yeah, yeah. Like, that's not an immigration issue. That's a yeah. keeping out the op opposing yeah, army that issue. that was a joke. Oh, oh, okay. <laughs> I went right over my head. I'm sorry. Yeah, no problem. So, to, to briefly um, let people know, Chaz is uh, the, what is it, Capitol Hill? Autonomous uh, Zone. Right. And apparently, which is a great name. Apparently now they're trying to call it CHOP instead, which would be like Capitol Hill Occupied Protest, I guess, which is not a noun. You can't call an area that, so I hate that name. But I guess it sounds less like a douchey frat bro, so people would prefer CHOP to Chaz. Um, Chaz is actually a piece of British slang uh, that means basically the same thing as ghetto. So, uh... Oh, no idea if that's why they changed it, but... I, I hate CHOP because I have a children's hospital near me called the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that everyone calls CHOP. Uh, so it's confusing. Um, but I think the occupied protest, I, I would guess that they changed the name because Autonomous Zone was eh, pretty antagonistic. And okay. sort of claimed it, it relied on this claim that they're not subject to any other authority. That well, yeah, that was their yes. claim. Yes, and I so by ch changing to chop, I'm suspect they may be backing off that claim. Oh, I see. So as quick fill um, fill in details for people who didn't know, in Seattle, a six block area was taken over by protesters. The police precinct there was emptied of police, and they all ran away. And now it's basically a uh, just an area where people don't have regulations for the most part. And the right seems to be spinning it as like you know a Mad Max war zone, 
but as far as I can tell, it's basically just kind of a Burning Man area in the middle of a city, which is interesting. I mean, there's just a bunch of people camping, there's everyone being like hippies and trying to get along and playing music and doing drugs, and, you know, I got, I got nothing against that. I am a big fan of Burning Man, but I also know that doing that sort of thing is expensive. When you go to Burning Man, you burn a lot of money in the process, because you got to bring all your food and everything it takes to support life into the middle of the desert. I'm sure it's not as bad in the uh, in a city where you have to bring less stuff, but, you know, you're still burning uh, money and not creating any, so I assume it'll go the way of all outdoor festivals and eventually disband when people run out of money and or drugs and or energy. Yeah, no, I'd be shocked if... Uh if this is still a thing a month from now i'd be mildly surprised if it's still a thing a week from now but uh i i am genu generally well disposed to um people rebelling against totalitarian governments and this is kind of like that so good on them yeah, yeah i i feel like it'll probably continue to be a thing but a very different thing from what it is now what kind of thing do you think it'll become oh probably just like an unofficial neighborhood in the city mm. okay you know like i know philly has a ton of unofficial neighborhoods um yeah and there's like you know a, and a ton of cities have like a gayborhood which is just kind of where the gay people all moved um with no official designation or anything so i imagine that the the chop may end up with something like that mm. as sort of this unofficial neighborhood where the, uh, you know, the revolutionaries go. Yeah. If, uh, if any of my revolutionary brother, uh, anarcho-capitalist brothers and sisters want to go pay a visit and, uh, tear down the statue of Lenin that's up in Seattle for some reason, uh, apparently tearing down statues of assholes is in fashion right now. So good time for it. Did you, did you say they have a statue of Lenin they in Seattle? They have a statue of Vladimir Lenin in Seattle. <laughs> Why? That is an excellent question. Probably because Seattle's full of communists. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's from from what I've heard, uh, there's tons of vandalism and the park is basically a, you know, a uh, tent city now. And it used to be like a more upper class area, but... For the most part, people seem pretty happy, and the only crime that's been reported has been two shootings that I nobody has any details about that as far as I've heard. Well, I mean, who would they report the crimes to? There's no police. <laughs> it's, it's true. Obviously, they're a rights enforcement agency that they've hired. Yeah. That, you know, that could be really cool if that comes into, into being. I'm not holding my breath. These are the uh, anarcho-socialists. Yeah. Oh. They're the bad kind. Yeah. So David tells me. <laughs> All right. Well, um, moving on to happy news. We covered some of that earlier um, with the Supreme Court decisions. Uh, but, Eniash, I think you had a little bit more bragging to do about Colorado. I do. In addition to us having among the lowest COVID rates in the West and holding steady at that point, uh, and I'd like to say that personally in Denver, at least, I haven't traveled outside of the city and Denver is pretty blue. Uh, in Denver and the surrounding areas, in any public locations, like everyone just wears masks. It's a given. But uh, in addition to that, Colorado passed the nation's first state law removing qualified immunity. Uh, and they, 
Insert applause Hell noises. Yeah. Yay! The law also bans chokeholds, and according to what has been reported, the legislature is continuing to work on more police reforms. So, yeah, it's we we are helping, you know, forge the way forward. So we've talked about a lot about, like, law stuff on this episode, so I guess it's just going to be one of those episodes. So would a state law actually um, take precedence over qualified immunity? Like, I don't... Yes, it okay, would. Okay, cool. Um, so qualified immunity is based on a federal statute. Um, so what you're suing under when you sue for a rights violation is you're telling the court my rights under the federal constitution were violated and this law section 1984 authorizes me to file a private lawsuit based on that now i don't know the law in colorado but i assume what happened here is that colorado said well we also have a state law that says if your rights are violated under our state constitution um, which is basically usually identical or more expansive than the rights guaranteed under the federal constitution, then you have a private right of action as well. We have a state law that says that. And so when they remove qualified immunity, they can say, well, okay, so under our state law, if you're suing under that, police don't have qualified immunity. And since that covers everything that the federal statute would cover, um, in effect, it just removes qualified immunity. You still have it technically under the federal law, but it doesn't really matter because you can sue under the state law, and it's probably, I would guess, more expansive than the federal law. Okay, so assuming in theory that uh, there's some police brutality in Colorado, uh, the person who gets brutalized sues, the uh, Colorado courts say that uh, the officer is liable, they appeal it up to federal court. So, like, what does that look like? They can't appeal it to federal court if it's a state law that they are suing under. Okay. Um, now, generally, in a civil rights action, you'll sue under the federal constitution and a state law, so that can get removed to federal court. But the federal court, then, will, seek, will apply the state law in the state case. Um, so they will not use the—they'll apply the federal law to the federal rights and the state law to the state rights. Okay, cool. Yeah, so it is very good and should be very effective. I did not realize we had that level of states' rights that were still respected by the feds. Oh, yeah. Um, whenever you see a state court decision appealed to the Supreme Court, it's because they are interpreting a federal right or a federal statute. A state court has absolute authority to interpret state laws. But the feds can overwrite them if they want to no um all right the feds the constitution well in some cases the constitution gives certain powers to the states certain powers to the federal government and the federal government has expanded those powers over the years as david i'm sure will have many rants about <laughs> but um there are certain areas such as the police power which the courts recognize as being inherently state powers and if, especially if states uh, want to criminalize something, um, unless it violates, you know, a constitutional right, then the feds aren't going to interfere with it. Okay, okay. good to know. Uh, I do want to clear up, like, I don't want to dwell on this. It's 
uh, something for a bonus episode, if anything. I am not a big states' rights guy, because uh, state governments are just as much, and in a lot of cases more so, capable of infringing on individual liberty than uh, the federal government, and uh, individual liberty is what I care about. So if the way that we get to the glorious libertarian future is by having a federal government that respects individual liberties, even if all the state governments don't want to, then I am all for having a, a uh, federal government that can override state governments. In practice, it doesn't tend to end up that way, so I'm provisionally a little bit more sympathetic to states' rights, but that's strictly a means to, to the end of achieving individual liberty. Yeah, and to be clear, when it comes to civil rights, the federal government can override the states um, because those are constitutional rights. Um, and also because of the Commerce Clause, the federal government can regulate a lot of behavior yes. um, because it arguably too much it indirectly affects commerce. And they were given the power to regulate commerce. So there's a lot of behavior you can cover under that. Um, but it, specifically in this case, when you're talking about um, interpreting a state law that authorizes people to um, sue when their state rights are violated, that's just a very internal state matter. And it's not something the federal government can really step on. And certainly not something the federal courts are going to step on. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I could... I could if I were a scummy lawyer, I could definitely come up with logic saying that police qualified immunity is interstate commerce. Uh, that's at least as tenuous as the, uh, or at most as tenuous as the actual logic that has been used in interstate commerce cases. But like I said, that's something for a bonus yeah. episode. Well, and if the federal court want or if the federal government wanted to pass a law saying that police everywhere get qualified immunity, um, it's unclear how that how the courts would rule on that. But that's not what we have. Qualified immunity is just based on an interpretation of a federal law that authorizes lawsuits. And the courts have interpreted that to say, OK, it authorizes lawsuits, but it has this caveat in it. Um, and that just doesn't apply when you're applying a state law. Okay, cool. All right, so moving on to troop deployment. As we all know, politics is the mind killer and arguments are soldiers. So in that vein, we ask each of our hosts to send a soldier out onto the battlefield. And we will start with David. Uh, so I actually am making a bit of an 11th hour change to my troop deployment here. Uh, originally, I was going to talk about how uh, the left change the narrative of, about the lockdowns overnight when the uh, lockdown protests went from a red tribe thing to a blue tribe thing, or rather protests during the lockdown, uh, since some of the protests weren't about the lockdown itself. Uh, that was irritating, and there will be something in the show notes. But I want to talk about Howl by Alan's, Alan Ginsberg instead. Uh, if you have read Scott Alexander's post Meditations on Moloch, he uh, quotes extensively from this poem, uh, where he uh, he's basically 
the poet is describing all these aspects of Moloch uh, as um, as uh, properties of society. And that uh, poem he quotes is actually an excerpt from Howl. Uh, I have heard good things about it for a long time, and I finally uh, read the uh, entire thing today. I actually uh, looked up on YouTube... Um, a uh, audio uh, recording of Allen Ginsberg himself reading it. Uh, so that is always something I recommend when it's uh, feasible. Uh, generally, listening to poetry I find is a lot better, is a much better way to experience it than uh, reading it on the page, especially beat poetry, which Howl is. Um, uh, so yeah, we'll have links in the show notes to both the written and audio versions of Howl. I highly recommend you read and or listen to it. Uh, it's a great poem. Uh, you also might want to look at, um, uh, a book called, uh, The People vs. Uh, uh, Ferlinghetti. Uh, so it's The People versus Ferlinghetti, The Fight to Publish Allen Ginsberg's Howl by Ronald Collins and uh, David Scover. Uh, it's a really interesting story. This was one of the uh, big cultural um, battles that um, led to the freedom of speech movement in the 50s and 60s. Uh, it was actually only, um, only, uh, legally speaking, it was only taken up to the municipal court, uh, so it didn't have much legal impact, but the opinion written by this municipal judge, which I'm sure Wes will tell you, it's kind of weird that a municipal judge is even writing opinions, uh, but... That is weird. Uh, the municipal judge in this case, um, his opinion went on to influence the um, the Supreme Court standard of obscenity, which basically more or less made uh, obscenity cases impossible to um, to prosecute. Uh, prosecute. Yeah, uh, so. Uh, read Howl and read The People versus Ferlinghetti. Uh, both are excellent. Awesome. Thank you for that right. recommendation. And Eniash, you are going to get us canceled. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm nervous about this one myself, but, eh, you know, courage, right? I don't know. Uh, so, my, uh, my troop is that J.K. Rowling did nothing wrong. Sort of. Uh, what people who are not familiar, J.K. Rowling has for a number of years now occasionally uh, had various subtweets about like, you know, I really think feminism should be mostly about natal women and things to that effect. Uh, and <sighs> natal woman is a weird term in the first place because she's trying to talk about people who were uh, born women biologically and have stayed that way throughout their lives. And one of the awkward things about talking about those people is that we used to have a word for them and now we don't and so there's like all these various terms that people have to use instead um anyways one of her tweets about two weeks ago i think just a little after we aired our episode 
basically expressed frustration at exactly this. There was a headline about people who menstruate, and she said, didn't we used to have a term for a word that meant people who menstruate, lol, uh, paraphrased. And uh, she got basically canceled for that because people were like, look, she's been kind of like turfy for a while now. This is all the evidence we need. And she put out a long rebuttal saying, uh, look, here are my opinions. And I... I basically agree that she is not a transphobe or a TERF. She is extremely liberal. She's been using her fame and her wealth uh, for years to push progressive causes. And her her two main contentions seem to be that uh, feminism should mostly be... Uh, feminism should primarily be centering uh, women in the old school term of the word. And if trans women, you know, are also helped by this, that's great, but it shouldn't be about them because they're a tiny popu uh, percentage of the people that feminism is supposed to be focusing on. And uh, her other opinion is that uh, she is fucking terrified of men in the abstract, which I also uh, agree with her on. I know that there is a long history of controversy with me and the server being like, I don't like men, and I think that men are basically, you know, created by evolution to uh to express violence and um and that's not a popular opinion but it's it is how i feel and so i absolutely get her point that it's great that there is a safe space in pretty much any public area that a woman can retreat to if she feels unsafe and that uh people are prevented from following a woman into that by by social social convention if those people look male uh if they look like either cis or trans men, they are not allowed in. And she's scared that more and more places are going to gender-neutral bathrooms, gender-neutral dressing rooms, these things, and so there won't be a place to retreat to anymore. And I think that is far more controversial, because, you know, men might not be all that awful. Maybe we don't need safe spaces for women everywhere, and we don't need to perpetuate this fear. Uh, but... I think her opinions are at least um, not hate-filled against trans people. She doesn't hate trans people. She just has these uh, these other concerns. And so when people say, you're a transphobe, you are cancelled, I am burning all your books, everybody should know that J.K. Rowling is terrible. It's too bad we don't know who wrote those wonderful Harry <laughs> Potter books. Man, that'd be great if their name had been recorded by history. Um that, in my opinion, only pushes more um, center-ish people, both moderate left and moderate right, further away from the left. Uh, I think this is particularly evident in J.K. Rowling's case because in addition to being a hardcore progressive, in the statement that she put out, there are several uh, turf talking points quoted. And this is primarily because once people start calling you a turf, the only places that will accept you and listen to you and uh, validate your fears are those TERFs. And so then you start getting inundated by their propaganda, which, to be uh, completely clear on this, is awful. Uh, TERFs, by and large, are horrible, hate-filled monsters, and I am not in any way supportive of them. But when all your former friends and allies on the left cast you out into the art of darkness, you know, you go where people will say, hey, look, you have a valid complaint. You're right to fear men. Uh, and and some of their talking points will get 
uh, into your brain and get put out in statements that you put out. So yes, she did. Uh, she did propagate some things which are probably not completely backed by by valid data, but she is not a a transphobe herself, in my opinion. And the only way she could become one is by people continuing to push her further and further into these arms of these people. Uh, but I don't I don't think she ever will become that way. She just seems to me she seems that she probably has a strong enough heart to be able to resist the most hate filled parts. And uh, I think I think it's just bad to to outcast people and attack them like that over things that can be legitimate complaints. All right. And uh, I usually let these uh, the soldier deployments go without comment, but I'd like to to make a comment on this one. Um, Please do. So, I think I I think you have good points about how canceling people is counterproductive. Um, I'm not a fan of cancel culture. I don't think when people say dumb wrong things, they should be exiled. Um, I do not agree, though, that. Well, let's see. I do agree that J.K. Rowling is not a turf because I don't think she's a radical feminist. <laughs> um, I don't think she's a transphobe necessarily, but that depending on what you mean by that. But I do think that she does not respect people's gender identities. Um, I read her defense of what she said, and it was very big on the idea that trans women basically suggesting that trans women are actually just men and that you can't have women only spaces if you allow trans women in them because then you're allowing men in them can i push back real quick yeah. on that i don't think i mean i think that is a one in way to read what she's saying but i think what she's actually saying is uh the only way to have spaces that only women are allowed is that if men are kept out of them and this unfortunately means that, uh, well, first there's the bigoted people that will say trans women are, shouldn't be allowed in there either. Um, but what it does mean is that you have to have places where someone who a, a outside observer says, look, you just look like a man. I don't know if you're a trans man or a cis man or whatever, but you look too much like a man. I, 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 you're not okay going into our bathroom. Uh, that's the thing that's going to have to happen. And if, anyone can simply enter any bathroom then the idea of safe spaces goes away entirely like it, it seems that her concern is that someone who looks like a cis man like just a normal dude with a beard wearing lumberjack flannels or whatever could follow a woman into a bathroom and all the uh onlookers will be like well i mean maybe he identifies as a woman so whatever it's all good uh which Ideally, if that person did identify as a woman, they should be allowed in anyway. But if there isn't, there's no way to like test that, right? You can't just ask people. So, and we're obviously not going to be checking people's genitals or whatever, which in addition to being crude, doesn't matter for, uh, for these purposes. Like the genitals isn't what make you a, a woman or a man for social purposes. So, so people are stuck based on going on appearances and she's scared that people will stop preventing people who look uh, like cis men from entering those public areas yeah. is my reading uh, I, I think that's enough getting us cancelled for one episode do you want to try to do a bonus episode on this because it sounds like both of you have a lot to say on this subject 
I will stop entirely. Wes, go ahead and say your thing, and I'm done. Uh, I, I just, I am skeptical of that idea just because there is not a lot of evidence that that's happening, that that's a real problem. Yes. Um, and it sounds like a mot that someone would retreat to um, when they don't want to sound transphobic but still express transphobic ideas. Okay. Um, but yes, we will stop that there. And I will move on to my troop deployment for the week, which is that we have too many laws. Too many things in America are illegal. Dude. Um, there are... <laughs> um, scholars have looked at this and said the average person commits three felonies per day. Um, there are laws and regulations against so many things that everyone breaks all the time. And so when you live in, in a society like that, first of all, it means we're all criminals. So there is no point in making any kind of distinction between criminals and anyone else. Criminals are everybody. And second of all, what it does is it allows the police and the governments and the politicians to selectively enforce the laws in ways that are unrelated to justice. Um, there have been a, lo a lot of talk these past few weeks about how laws are selectively enforced against black people. And the thing that allows that, that makes that possible, is that there are so many laws getting broken all the time. And I think that one thing that should be considered when looking at how to fix policing in America is that fewer things should be illegal. Libertarians have been on this beat for decades, my dude. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah, I, yeah, you have my absolute agreement. All right. Well, that is our show for the week. Uh, please follow us if you're not already. We have an RSS feed, and you can find us on basically every podcast site. Um, please leave us a review, whether you loved us or hated us. Uh, we're still thankful for any review you leave. And come back in two weeks. Same rat time, same rat channel.